for me, I, I do art because that's where you can fight for freedom. You know, it's about time and it's about space and it's about creativity and imagination. And it's about the debts that you owe. Earlier this summer, the news that the Theodore Roosevelt statue in front of the American Museum of Natural History in Manhattan was going to come down surprised a lot of people, me included. I'd been covering the protests around this statue when they first started back in 2016. And even then, I felt a sense of inevitability when I stood under the shadow of the sculpture and saw a proud looking figure of a former US president flanked by two stereotypical figures, one of an African and another of a Native American. Sure, this would probably come down, I thought. I mean, it looked pretty racist. But when? That was the question. But then the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police happened on May 25th. And the event sent shockwaves around the world, igniting a massive wave of Black Lives Matter protests with people demanding justice for Floyd and other black people killed by police. As part of the growing racial reckoning, Confederate memorials, and monuments of slave traders who profited off the trade of humans were also being called out. So it did seem like the Roosevelt statue wasn't long for this world. And then on June 21st, the New York Times reported that the statue was going to be moved. I'm Hrag Bartanyan, the host of the Hyperallergic Podcast. The voice you heard at the beginning is that of Amin Hussein, one of the driving forces behind the MTL Plus Collective and Decolonize This Place, two of the many groups advocating for issues like the removal of monuments that celebrate white supremacy and issues of systemic racism in art museums and the art community at large. He's joined by scholar and activist Natasha Dillon, who is Amin's longtime comrade, the interview, which was recorded before the death of George Floyd, still resonates, as their message has largely remained the same through the years. I hope this will illuminate many of the ideas MTL Collective has long advocated for. During the interview, you'll also hear the sounds of various protest actions I've covered through the years with groups that are affiliated with Amin and Natasha. I dug them up from my archives to help you hear what these events were like in person, as most people have only seen photos or read about the actions. I'm Amin Hussein, and I'm a member of Decolonize This Place, and I also teach here and there and give talks. I'm an artist working on a film right now about Palestine and decolonization. I'm Natasha Dillon, and uh, I'm also part of Decolonize This Place and also MTL Collective. I'm an artist, uh, organizer, filmmaker, working on the film on Palestine, and uh, also a doctoral student in media study. So thank you, both of you, for coming into the studio. You know, well, there's a pandemic going on. <laughs> this we all know. We're sitting here with our masks in the studio here at Hyperallergic HQ. Um, we're talking into microphones using masks. This is a different world than it was a few months ago. Thoughts? Well, I mean, it's part of an unending crisis. I think it's heightened with the pandemic, but I think the pandemic itself isn't a surprise. 
the crisis of both capitalism and settler colonization is something that we've been working on and talking about a lot. And uh, now that it's here and it's clear, this disaster and crisis is involving a lot of other, a lot of aspects of society and people. But yeah, we're here for it. So, I mean, when you say crisis, I've heard you say this and I understand the context of it. But for people who've never heard this, like, what's the crisis? Well, the crisis is that you are unable to live and unable to love and unable to have time and to have shelter and to be cared for and be able to care for others. And I think that crisis is one that's dehumanizing. And I think we've been in it for a really long time, but it has reached such levels and such to the core of any fabric right now that you can see people dying you think you may die you know a lot of other people are dying so it's not just here um and that some people a few own so much and most of us own so little Mm. natasha um follow that (laughs) and uh, i think personally for me um i stopped completely during the kind of uh, you know we're in new york and it was one of the epicenters in the world and we've seen like the ambulances like not seen we heard the ambulances and the constant kind of the air change and the feeling of the city change and we're seeing that even right now but i think just to the point you would think that something like this, which is at this scale, right, would affect people equally. All right. That's the narrative that's been put out. Like if you actually look at any of the news channels or even like, you know, Como's hearings, all of it is like we're all in this together. That's actually not true. Right. So once again, you see this push of being like, oh, we're all in this together. This virus can affect anybody. And it has affected us all equally in the sense that the idea of the normalcy or like the idea of a normal world is gone. But I think that very quickly you start seeing who are the people dying, who are like the essential workers, all of that. And none of it is surprising because these are people who are part of people's families and, you know, people have lived these lives. Like we have come from places where this is not new news, right? And so like, for example, in India, it's very similar where, you know, everybody who was able to afford to have a shelter in place to stay inside is the one who's going to be able to survive this. But there's people who've been walking miles (laughs) and nobody's doing anything. And so you're seeing, basically the point is that you're seeing already existing structures and then the inequalities that exist within those structures, just like hyper, like much more hyper than what, you know, they're at the core of it. And I think the point around settler colonization is really important because in some ways you can think, you know, who's loss of which world? I think that's the most important thing. There has been loss of many worlds, you know, war, violence, genocide, settler colonization. These are all losses of worlds for people, yeah. right? And that's something, in, in some ways, the work that we've been doing is part of that. When you say Palestine, or when you say indigenous sovereignty, or when you say black liberation, or when you say, you know, immigration rights, all these, these are things part of that. And you can see, like, right now, detention centers, prisons, you know, people who are dying, being, you know, essential workers, mailmans. Who are these people? And so, yeah, I think for me, the crisis is just really just being like, okay, you just have to continue the work that was already happening and nothing really shifts that way. It's just like, you know, you have to just care more. So I met you guys first in 2014 when I was covering the Guggenheim protest. (laughs) Oh, so many years ago. I mean, uh, I, I couldn't remember if it was eight years ago or 10 years ago. Time gets kind of collapsed into itself, I think. So there, I first was sort of introduced to some of the ideas, but your ideas have definitely evolved and changed over the years. 
Can we talk a little bit about that initial push mm-hmm. and why that was the thing that ignited this? Do you know, or at least what it looks like for me, that it seemed to ignite a much bigger strategy and sort of thinking about all these issues of inequality and settler colonialism and all these other things? Yeah, no, I think that our thinking has evolved. And I by that, I think our analysis for how change is brought about and how we participate in it and how do we support and act in solidarity with other struggles. You know, the work around the Guggenheim and in general institutions, cultural institutions, was really brought out by Occupy. And, and Natasha can speak more about it because she was one of the core people. But in general, a lot Wait, of different... you were one of the core people? I didn't know that. For Gulf Labor Coalition? No, during Occupy. Oh, during Occupy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> she, she's being very shy right now. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> no, she and and particularly Occupy museums, where the analysis mm-hmm. around class and and looking at board of trustees and introducing direct action. So that that's where the the Guggenheim push came from, and I think that. You know, artists in general, they did the boycott with the Guggenheim. They did all these traditional things that artists are more or less comfortable with that don't seem out of the norm. And then we were invited as, uh, you know, part of 52 weeks of uh, art, I think, or 52 weeks. But it was art and action and whatever. And the 10th week we organized and we said, you know what? Wait, do you want to explain 52 weeks for people who don't know? Sure, sure. I mean, 52 weeks was kind of the response by a lot of artists who were organizing in uh, Gulf Labor Artists Coalition Mm -hmm. to bring pressure on the museum since they weren't ready to to listen to the demands and what's being asked of them in terms of building, uh, I guess, an ethical museum in the UAE. Mm Mm-hmm especially around labor laws and labor rights and, right. and the migrant workers. And people who followed Hyperallergic know that we've covered Louvre Abu Dhabi, the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi. So this is these are the types of museums you're Key. talking about. Yeah. Key. So the analysis was there. It was still within a, a human rights framework. But we participated, and the whole point was to introduce a strategy of how do we create leverage. And the leverage was through actions by targeting an institution and using aesthetics and and organizing around this where we build kind of relationships and analysis. And that brought the kind of pressure on the Guggenheim. Since since then, I think that we have recognized the limitations of organizing and coalition where the politics is limited. In other words, we have to have what we took away from that, and I'll end on this point, is that it's not enough to have unity amongst groups that want to hold an institution accountable. Because what's more important, in in order to have power, in order to have leverage, is that you have to work together with people who have a shared politics of collective liberation. Mm. Once you zero in on that, your strategy becomes broader and you also become very, you're in the game right now. You're able to see and you recognize things. And I think that's what we took away but I think Natasha can also add to that a lot. Mm. I mean, I think Occupy and Strike that were part of the you know experiences from which also Gulf Labor, Global Ultra Luxury Faction, which is the direct action wing can, of Gulf Labor. Can I ask about Strike That? What's that? Strike That. 
Oh, strike debt. I got it. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, I just yeah, want yeah. to be clear for people who yeah, may not strike have heard. Debt. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, and I think that the reason why it's important to bring in Occupy and strike debt in that way is because one of the ways that we've organized over 10 years or we've done this work is that you know, walking, you ask questions. That's something that you get from the Zapatistas. Or like you learn more from your failures. You know, it's it's more about failing than about succeeding, right? Mm-hmm. So it's more like, yeah, we understand the world that we live in and, and we see what's going on every single day, even with this crisis, as you mentioned. But not doing anything is not an option, right? And who is it an option for? So in terms of that, what we do is we kind of, it's the idea of acting by doing, right? And it's thinking by doing. And so those are the kind of like frameworks that we've developed for our own practice, where then we, you know, when we participate in movements and the idea of movements keep moving. And so when we were part of Occupy, I think from Occupy, we learned very quickly that even though it brings a capitalist, like an anti-capitalist framework, it fails in terms of like race and gender and like the whole structure, right? Like, you know, it completely failed at that. And and it was an important conversation to be had. Very similarly, it was the crisis of 2008, you know, and, and many people now are kind of pointing back to that kind of a moment wondering whether that kind of a movement is going to be part of what we see in the future and we know already like you know protests are happening back again in Hong Kong and we're seeing these kind of things come back or the protests by people in Minneapolis or Michigan like you know with their bloody guns out absolutely <laughs> yeah that, that, so Amin mentioned Amin mentioned your work with Occupy do you uh-huh. want to talk a little bit about that yeah so the work with Occupy was I think it was for me a training ground in some ways like I was an artist a very traditional like photographer kind of a person and when I went into Occupy I actually went in with uh, you know skepticism I wasn't going there to kind of participate in the movement but I was just going there to document it and that was something that I was trying to make it very clear that I'm not here participating but I'm here documenting and I think that idea of representation and how one thinks of representation completely got shifted during Occupy with the idea of no demands or like even the kind of flow that was created in that space right I think that was something that was as an experience that for me was really helpful and what I saw from that was that groups like Direct Action which were at the forefront of like organizing like the Brooklyn Bridge March or all of these actions around Wall Street those groups are very disconnected from all these other groups that kept forming, right? So there was there was some sort of a disconnect between the idea of doing something and like thinking and acting. And you would see mostly that in like arts groups and you would mostly see that in education and empowerment groups, like anything that came from academia or the art world or any of these institutions or, you know, paid organizers. These were all part of kind of challenging the systems because Occupy Wall Street was inherently challenging, you know, in that way, like being against institutions, that was a huge part of it. And so the the work with Occupy was really just thinking about title, which was a zine, a theory practice zine. And it basically included voices like Drew Butler and Gayatri Spivak, combined with movement organizers from the ground. And then the work with Occupy Museums was really to push, at that point, MoMA around the Sotheby struggle and the art handlers who were locked out. And then also, it was around the board. <laughs> right. So the right. conversation right. around the board has always been there. It's been 10 years since that was, you know, kind of brought up with MoMA. And so my my work was mostly just trying to think of what direct action means in the context of museums. And then with Gulf labor, I think the Gulf labor also came from then that understanding of the failures of Occupy and strike debt. And then strike debt was basically an offshoot of Occupy Wall Street. Once the park was lost or once organizing around the idea of space or idea of banks kind of went away, people started thinking about work and hold space.
So, Natasha, you have pretty deep roots in doing this kind of work now, at least here in New York. When you first approached Occupy, how old were you? And you said you arrived in New York as a photographer. Yeah. You went to ICP, correct? Yes, that's right. The International Center for Photography. Mm-hmm. You're still coming with your dreams. I'm guessing no one shows up as a photographer in New York without <laughs> your dreams, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this vision of what it is. First of all, what was that dream? And how did Occupy change that dream? Um, so the dream, damn, um, the dream was to just, uh, come here for two years and then go back home. (laughs) That was the dream. And then I met Amin at the ICP and then our journey together in terms of the movement work that we've done kind of kept me around and, you know, is keeping me around in terms of, and now, now it's not just Amin at that time it was Amin and now there's a bigger family. I love it. Art school, (laughs) art school pals. Yeah, art school pals. Exactly. And now I have a bigger family and I, I have a bigger chosen family I stay back for but in terms of my dreams I think it was um, you know that the western art world has influences everywhere it has it in Delhi as well I was an aspiring artist in Delhi and then I saw that everybody who kind of like court made it (laughs) you know came from some sort of western education or was part of some sort of western exhibitions like the biennials like documenta and delhi is a colonial system even the kochi biennial even the kochi biennial exactly so for me which is india's most prominent art biennial exactly so for for me it was just like let me just go see what the what the deal is about and so my plan was that i'll go for two years learn because one year you know i pay for the education and one year you get the optional training like the extra one year work visa and so I was like, I'm going to just do two of those and then I'm going to return. And now today I'm still struggling with visas, but somehow I'm here. <laughs> so when you saw Occupy, uh-huh. you went in with this skepticism. Uh-huh. You use that term yourself. Mm-hmm. And then you saw what it was about. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing you immediately connected with the systems they were trying to, you know, mm-hmm. dismantle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what was the first aha moment? I think it was Brooklyn Bridge. Hmm. I think it was the Brooklyn Bridge action because it was something that I've never seen something like that in my life. Like the collective power of people mm-hmm. coming together and really holding it down. So do you want to explain what that was for those? Yeah, it there? was the plan was for people to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge and go to Bank of America on the other side because Bank of America. So from Brooklyn to the, to Manhattan? No, from Manhattan to Brooklyn. I got it. And the plan was to go to one of the banks on the other side. And the idea of like, you know, you, the idea of mapping the city through your bodies, right? Mm-hmm. So Brooklyn Bridge being an iconic area as well and taking over the Brooklyn Bridge in terms of action. And I was on the I, I was on the top I was on the pedestrian area but what I saw there and like the kind of you know we talk about this idea of the thresholds the thresholds of transformation mm-hmm. what is the tipping point that when you cross over I think that was my point and uh, and actually also uh, going to Palestine with Amin oh. that was right before Occupy and that's that's where we started MTL Collective so that's interesting both of them have to do with geography yeah and transversing <laughs> yeah borders and yeah. boundaries yeah. now Amin How about you? Like, so your story is, well, I mean, how similar or different? I mean, very different in some ways, very similar in other ways. I mean, I think uh, our backgrounds are very similar in the sense that, you know, lower middle class, you know, good education, traversing multiple worlds. So I was raised in Palestine, but I was raised under occupation. And I think... um, A lot of the essential questions philosophically that you have to think about in terms of life and death and and care and justice, those were everyday conversations and they're felt bodily. So, you know, the journey 
the journey around these concerns and questions have taken different iterations, whether it's through college, through acts of, you know, physical resistance, or trying to get jobs that pay money to you to then distribute to your family, working at a law firm. All of these things were kind of modes that I I was trying to kind of learn and in the process fail at what it means to kind of live a good life and just try to be happier. (laughs) So I think that when we met each other, we were thinking about power and domination and solidarity. Because I think one of the things that I realized, at least for me, that collective liberation requires collective action. Mm. And the entire process has been on what basis? Do you take collective action? Because you can't Mm -hmm. expedite it. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of uh, shared experience, I didn't include my father was in the Indian Army. So that was part of my experience. And I'm from Punjab. So I come from a family of farmers or army. That's literally, Mm -hmm. you know, what the thing is built of. And not my my father was not in the army because it was some sort of like patriotism or something like that. But it was more, you know, the British Indian Army. Like my grandfather was in the British Indian Army as a soldier. We know now like how much of the wars that are led by these Western countries are actually fought by soldiers from poor countries. Right. Right. And so uh, my grandfather was part of that kind of, you know, he fought both the world wars for the Britishers. And so that was kind of like the family that I'm coming from farmers. And then like the idea of going to the army was making it out. And then seeing my father then serve in Kashmir, like he was part of posted in Kashmir for three years during the time that I witnessed, you know, the kind of, and he was on the line of control, as I said. Like, what years? This is 99, so 98 and 99. So yeah. I was in seventh grade. And so I was right in the, and it was one of those moments where I had gone to visit him during the summer and everything shut down. And, you know, it was like wartime. <laughs> and wow. so that was some of the experiences yeah. in terms of like, sometimes I feel like with this virus, I'm kind of in that phase. And, and in fact, if you speak to a lot of people talking about it being an unending crisis, a lot of people like a lot of my uh, you know a lot of people from Kashmir a lot of people from Palestine say oh it's just you know it's the it's the lockdown from the occupation <laughs> it feels that way I also uh, just to bring up kind of commonalities uh, because we did meet at ICP but another commonality is like my dad was a migrant worker hmm. and you know migrant worker as a Palestinian working in Kuwait and he was a mechanic there and we joke because when my dad when I came to the States they threw a graduation party for me and people gave money and that's how I bought my ticket <laughs> to get here. But, um, wow. but you know, one of the things that he, the wisdoms that he gave me is like, you can never go hungry. You can never go hungry. You can, you know, worst comes to worst, buy some bread and some cola. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. I think like, so part of what we share is that this class mobility in which our parents sacrificed a lot for us to be in this position. Hmm. And then, so it's not that we do art because, uh, and so it's a privilege, which a lot of artists, you know, say that. For me, I I do art because that's where you can fight for freedom. Hmm. You know, it's about time and it's about space and it's about creativity and imagination. And it's about the debts that you owe. And I think that, you know, that's something Palestine, the debts that you owe to your friends when they die and you live. You know what I mean? Like, because the struggle is longer than any of our lives. And I think Palestine has taught us that. And I think that we've carried on these knowledges with us in our work. 
Right. So your dad worked in Kuwait, you said, for a while. And so did you grow up with him or was he always away or did you, how did that work? So my dad went to Kuwait when he was 14, came back uh, during the 1967 war. Got it. <laughs> and, and when uh, you say back, you mean Palestine. To Palestine, right. yeah. And so, and then he stayed there. There's a whole story about how he ended up with a you know, a Mercedes car from a general that left. <laughs> also, don't forget the fact that, you know, Palestine was, was a colonial, uh, you know. A British uh, colonial. Yeah. Right, right, <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right, so we absolutely. have that commonality. With Kuwait, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, and then the final thing, I think, but my mom also, and this is what is interesting because this is how class is an important thing. And I think this is why in the art world and in our work, how do you think about this moment isn't about books and big knowledge and shit like that. You know, my mom was raised in the projects in Gary, Indiana, you know, and um, she was one of one woman butcher amongst a hundred men, hmm. you know, went to Palestine, you know, as a third or fourth generation American, married my dad and, and they were together and, and that's our backgrounds. So we traverse multiple worlds in our own right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that comes through in how we think about the world. Right. And in how we're comfortable with failure because of that. So you, all, you also brought up one of my favorite topics, which is class. And I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence in like the art world, because as much as the art world likes to talk about inequality, somehow class doesn't really factor in. But in the art world, I have to say, I'd never encountered a community that was so upper middle class, but pretended they weren't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's that all about? Any ideas? I feel like, uh, you know, I have uh, in another lifetime for two years, I was an assistant to a fashion photographer in Delhi. And the art world seems just like the fashion world to me in that way. Right. <laughs> and I think it's really important to understand that, I mean, for people who are wanting to imagine different worlds or wanting to not just imagine, actually act, the art world does provide this place for freedom and creativity. But at the same time, the structures of it, right, the ones that have been set up, they've all been set up based on class mobility. You know, I mean, we know art offers as a money laundering, as a art washing, as a, you know, several projects within the system. And then there's the facade of that. And then there's the facade of like, oh, here's art. Like, you know, we're engaged in this project. So how do you respond to artists? Because, you know, this is a conversation I hear a lot in terms of not this one, but the one I'm about to suggest, which is, yeah, but, you know, as long as I can get to do my work and I'm doing good work, it doesn't matter who buys it. I mean, this I hear a lot, right? And I think there's, and everyone uses the justification of, oh, look at the Renaissance, the Medicis, they were terrible people, or the robber barons, or all these sort of like citation. Of course, they only cite those ones, right? Never the other movements that were not sort of like funded that way. But how do you respond to them? I mean, any artist that, that approaches things in that way around freedom of speech or expression or creativity and just like, oh, it's working for me, at least they're honest. You know what I mean? It's 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 not something that I, I think that people that make art for art's sake and all these different conversations about what is art and whatever really is, you know, it, it should allow us to interrogate these things and then people can always go the paths that they want. But what they can't do is wash themselves of the guilt or the complicity in propping up the structures that oppress, dominate, exploit, extract, and then make work about those topics, right? So like there's these conversations. I think that 
they cleanse their conscience. Yeah, you know, look, we know artists, we know artists, so many that do things like, oh, and I want... And to be fair, critics and curators and, and oh, museum yeah, yeah, yeah. directors and everyone and else. All of them. And all of them. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. They're, they're settlers, but they don't acknowledge their settler status. They come from money, but they don't say that. You know what because I mean? Because the criticality offers a kind of a cushion. Distance. A right. distance. Like, if you're critical, all you need to be doing is be critical. <laughs> Right, you need to name it. You need to say it. You don't need to say. You don't need to ask or begin from the, your position, mm -hmm. the land that you stand on, the things that you benefited from. You're not a racist. I've but, studied race, race theory, and I can tell you all about critical race theory. I know how structural racism theory. exists. Right. <laughs> I know right. all these things. Right. Right. But, but I, then over an email, <laughs> you'll see a completely different thing. Now another way to approach, and then this, you find their black blackface photo. <laughs> Exactly. But another way, you know, I like I teach I teach art classes, for example. But when I talk to my students, my students come from all sorts of backgrounds. It's okay. But we need to own that and we need to name it. And when we own it and name it, then there's a certain set of questions that present themselves. I can't force what answer other people have. I'm constantly asking my questions of me. But at the end of the day, you can't avoid these questions and do the work and still be think you're on the side of the oppressed. Hmm. I have a completely different way to answer it as well. I think that as artists or curators or any of these things, one of the things that I see as one of the problems uh, with the current things is like, everything is based on the individual genius, right? The artist as an individual genius, the curator as the individual, my work, my writing, my grant, my like the whole system is set up for an individual genius, right? But as Amin was talking earlier, our lived experiences are knowledges that we carry. Where do those knowledges come from? How do we actually commodify those and then make them into things, right? In which can then further go into art or cure, like whatever, like writing, whatever you want. But I think that one of the reasons, one of the things that I would say is, who are you accountable to? Who is your community that you're accountable to? And I think that's a really important point because the moment you start saying that, oh, I want to make it as an artist, then you're accountable to the market. Right. Because what does making it as an artist mean? Right. So you're accountable to the market because that's the only way you can make it. And so what does not making it mean? What does actually making art mean? What does actually writing mean? What does actually doing anything that makes sense to change the world that we're living in? Very simple. Like, it's not much more complicated than that. And if you start from the land that you're standing on, it begins to unravel, and then you discover that it's actually part of every fabric of life that's structured around you. And so in terms of that, I would say that the idea of the individual artist, I think, at its core is also one of the problems of this kind of, you know, the artist as a class or any of these things. And just to look at the actions, if you think about them, all the actions that we've been seeing for so many years in the city, not just in the art institutions, but also on the streets, how many artists are part of it? There's a lot of artists, there's a lot of writers, there's a lot of curators who are part of these actions. And these are the things that provide the thinking for their work. So once again, who are you accountable to is the first question one should ask. This is not a metaphor! What you're listening to is the sounds of the October 10th, 2016 anti-Columbus Day protests organized by Decolonize This Place and others. That protest built on earlier actions, starting in 1971, when the American Indian movement splashed red paint at the site, 
And then, in 1991, the monument was a symbolic part of David Hammond's public enemy installation at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Fast forward to this century, and in 2015, the Black Youth Project 100's Blackout Tour highlighted the racist histories at the American Museum of Natural History, while the following year, the first anti-Columbus Day event took place. At that unconventional museum tour, which highlighted the racist framing and positioning of artifacts and dioramas, ended with the protesters cloaking the Roosevelt statue with a large parachute before police intervened and removed the dark green chute. This podcast, by the way, is the first of a much longer interview I conducted with Amina Natasha of MTL+. Listen to part two, which is available on the same feed, and that will elaborate on their work and their mission, including insights into their interactions with the Guggenheim and the Brooklyn Museum. You'll want to hear about that. And their vision of what comes next. I encourage you to check it out. I'm Hrag Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. We'll be highlighting the murder. We'll be highlighting the murder.